You're listening to Pastor Jesse Miller of City Lights Church. This morning we are continuing our our look at the book of Acts. Uh, That's where we're at. It's where we are taking our example for what the church should look like. Um, And this morning I'm probably going to look at a part of a passage and hit on a topic that's not usually looked at in this passage. But before I do, I want to share... um, a, a bit of a story. Actually, I'm actually going to read a bit of a story, a little bit. Uh, I'm big into books. I love stories. And uh, sometimes stories and books, whoever the author is, they're always trying to get at something. They're always trying to portray part of life, a desire, uh, a personality, or something we think and feel, and sometimes we don't know how to express. And, and I love a good story that where you see portrayed through characters parts of how sometimes I feel or you feel throughout the day. Does that make sense? Um, and one of my favorite stories is by C.S. Lewis, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Um, I'm not pro-witch, in case that's what you're wondering, if you don't know the story. Um, the other day I had an argument with my children. They, they watched cartoons, and Faith was holding a toy broom, running around saying, I'm a witch. I said, no, you're not. She said, yes, I am. They're, I said, no, you are not. She's like, no, I'm a good witch. I said, no, all witches are evil. Stop it. And she's like, no, they're not. I'm like, all right, you want time out? I will take that broom from you and throw it in the trash. Like... <laughs> But that is not the point of the line, witch in the wardrobe. Um, it is, the witch in this is bad. <laughs> um, but there's a, there's a part of it. Today, I, I want to talk about, how many of you guys have heard the, or seen the movie, at least, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? And you have four children, right? Sons of Adam and daughters of Eve, in case you weren't aware of that. But there's the one child... It always seems to be one of the middle child children, doesn't it? I'm sorry if you're a middle child. It, but it always seems to be one of them who just has, like, there's a, there's a thing about jealousy and envy. And in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, um, we see that they go through the wardrobe into this Narnia. And there is the second son, Edmund. Um, and, I, I wanna, and he encounters this witch, this white witch, right? And she... Let me just read a few little parts real quick, if I could. She says this, I think I would like to make you the prince someday when you bring the others to visit me. Why not now, said Edmund. His face had become very red and his mouth and his fingers were sticky because he was eating Turkish delight, in case you didn't know, okay? Turkish delight. It's awful food, awful candy. It's disgusting. Anyway, in my opinion. He did not look either clever or handsome, whatever the queen might say. Oh, but if we took you there now, said sh- she said, I shouldn't see your brother and your sisters. I very much want to know your charming relations. You are to be the prince, and later on the king, that is understood. But you must be, have courtiers and nobles, and I will make your brothers a duke and your sister a duchess. There's nothing special about them, said Ed- Edmund, and anyway, I could always bring them some other time. So Edmund already has his aggression against his siblings and when they when she entices him with this i'll make you a king and they will be lesser than you and he says there's nothing special about them his siblings and then later on we see this this is what he's saying as he's walking back to the queen when i am the king of narnia the first thing i shall do is to be able to make some decent roads and of course that set him off into thinking that of being a king and all the other things that he would do and this cheered him up a good deal 
He had just settled in his mind what sort of palace he should have and how many cars and all, all about the private cinema and where the principal railroads would run and what laws he would make against beavers and, and dams and was putting the finishing touches on some other schemes for keeping Peter in his place. When the weather changed, first the snow stopped. I'll stop there. So in the, in the line of the witch in the wardrobe, this, this imagery always stuck in my mind. Here you have a brother, and he's frustrated he's a younger brother. The older brother gets to make all these decisions, and he's not believed half the time. He's kind of a, he's, he's kind of a real pain, isn't he? And what you see is this witch knows this, and she entices him with, you'll be better than them. You'll be greater than them. And then as you see him walking, he's beginning to make this plan. When I'm king, this is all that I'm going to build up for myself, and this is how I'm going to stop my brother. This is how I'm going to crush my brother. What we see in this book is this massive imagery of jealousy that controls Edmund. It, it's his motivating factor. It's the reason for betrayal. That and some Turkish delight, which I said earlier. I tried once out of curiosity. I'm like, oh, Turkish delight. That's in the Narnia book. It's got to be delicious. This is disgusting. It's real gooey. Sorry if you like Turkish delight. It's weird. That's my opinion. I'd rather have a Reese's, you know, honestly. That would, that would make me betray my siblings. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. So inside of us all, let me, let, before we get into the passage, inside of us all, there's often these things, whether it's an older brother or, or a family member or a co-worker or something, we look at them and say, I, I love that he said, there's nothing special about them anyway. What's so special about them? We don't, you don't need to give them anything. They're not special. And somehow we get this in our hearts at some level where we look at our coworkers, we look at family members, and we think, I'm a little bit better than them. I've got a little bit more something special. Let's look at Acts chapter 9. Like I said, this is a strange direction that most people take on this passage. But here in, in Acts chapter 9, we see the conversion of Saul to Paul. Acts chapter 9, verse 1. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for a letter to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, or new Christians, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to, to do. The man, who, the man who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there, were a, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Rise and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying. And he has seen a vision, a man named Ananias, come in and lay hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all those who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine 
to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes, and he regained his sight. Then he rose and he was baptized, and taking food, he was strengthened. So here we have this interesting story where we see Saul, who is doing everything he can to persecute Christians, and he's on this road to Damascus. Most of us have heard this story before. Saul's on his horse, or he's on this road, and all of a sudden the light appears, and he hears the voice of God saying, why are you persecuting me? And he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus saying, it's me, Jesus, you're persecuting. And then he tells them, go here to this house, and a man named Ananias We'll pray for you, and you'll see again. And then God tells Ananias, this is about to happen. And Ananias is like, I've heard of this guy. This guy is trying to capture us. Basically saying, are you sure about this, God? Are you you sure that that's the man I'm supposed to pray for and belong a part of? Call another brother. Is that, are you sure about this? The verse that stuck out to me, and I really want to look at today is one that we tend to overlook as believers in our, in our West, Western society, Christianity. We tend to overlook this. Verse 16 says, For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. There's a lot of verses in the Bible that we can look at that talk about the blessings of God. And we love clinging to those verses, don't we? We love holding on to those verses about how good God is and how he gives his children good gifts and and all these giftings from God and how he loves and he heals and he protects and he guides and he, he leads and all that. Those are good things and they're all absolutely true. But at the same time, here you have one of the leading men in Christianity and and Jesus says to Ananias, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Sometimes if, if we begin to just focus in life on the verses that talk about God giving blessing and God giving rewards and loving us, then when suffering happens in this Christian life and when we suffer for his name, we get really confused sometimes. We get confused at best and we get complaining at worst. We begin to complain. I think most of us in life, when things aren't going the way we had dreamed, the big dreams, we begin to make these arguments that life's not fair. And that starts at an early age. You can just look at kids or whatever and realize kids say it's not fair all the time. It's so annoying right now. Sorry about that. Just venting. But I remember for me thinking that all the time. I can give you a hundred examples. I had a great childhood, but I can't, I don't even know how many times I said things like it's not fair. It wasn't fair that my cousin got to watch G.I. Joe's and I was not allowed. It wasn't fair that he had wrestling action figures and I didn't. He had video games and I didn't. And he had a later bedtime and I didn't. And we, we, we did, do you guys know, does this ring bells for anybody's childhood? Like you always look at that one friend. It's not fair. How come they get to do this and I have to do this? Why does, one of the things that drove me nuts as a kid and as a teenager more than as a kid, 
I would literally not study for any kind of test. I would study in homeroom. Uh, I would study 10 minutes before the exam, and I would get B's and A's. My sister, on the other hand, she would study for hours and hours. At night, she'd have flashcards across her floor. I remember this vividly. I'd be like, hey, you want to do something? She's like, I can't. I got to study. Mom says I have to study. And she would study and study and study, and she'd get a C. And when she'd come home with a C, my mom and dad would be like, good job. Well done. I'd come home with a B minus. You could have done better. And I'm like, that's not fair. Look what she got. Well, she put a lot of work into it. You didn't. It doesn't matter. I don't need to work. Why work if I don't have to work? And you didn't try. That's not fair. That's not fair. Like we, we do this all the time. We look at everybody else and we begin to make this not fair thing happen. And for, for this verse, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. That's not a very happy promise, is it? I'm going to show him how much he must suffer. Life, life isn't fair. And, and this weekend, I, was at a, I had to do my first funeral I've ever done. And I was talking with the family afterwards. And, and it was a, an older man who had passed. And they were just talking about different things in life. And they were saying that they don't understand how sometimes really young people get sick and how they die and how sometimes the, the really raw, the, a really bad person seems to live forever. Not talking about that individual, but just in life. And they were talking about how come sometimes really bad parents have a lot of kids and the people who would be great parents seem to not be able to get pregnant. It doesn't seem fair. Or you guys, you guys know what I'm talking about where you watch, you watch TV and you see the person who won the lottery and they've like built their entire house out of like Coors Light cans. Like that, they're that person. Like they don't, they're, <laughs> they're not very wise people, you know. Or it's like the hundred-year-old man who won the lottery, you know. It's, it's the uh, Alanis Morissette song. It's ironic, don't you think? The old man wins the lottery and dies the next day, the whole thing. That's right, I quoted Alanis Morissette today. There you go. That was not in my notes. <laughs> but like, it does, sometimes life just doesn't seem fair. Like, wait, how does that make sense? That this person who would be an amazing parent has had three miscarriages. And, and they can't, or that person can't get, caught, can't get married. But then that family's got seven kids. They don't know who any of the dads are. And all of them are, you know, running the streets at night. And the mom's doing heroin. You know, we've, we've all thought those thoughts, right? Where that's not fair. It doesn't make sense. How come you look at church history and you see that there are martyrs, countless martyrs who have died for the gospel? And then you see another time where you hear stories of a, of a shooter coming into a church and he goes to pull the trigger and the gun just stops and the pastor escapes. How come God rescues one from being a martyr and not the other? We just saw what happened in Charleston. Why, why did you rescue that one before God? And, and, and why, or why did you, I've heard the stories of, of a, a guy who wanted to kill the pastor and he comes into the church and he gets saved in the midst of that service. He experienced, why did you not do that in Charleston, God? We begin to make these, that's not fair, it doesn't seem to make sense. How come you did that for them and not for me? We begin to build this thing in our heart sometimes where we, we make this case that, God, why, why won't you rescue me? And here we have Paul 
who we, if we know the life of Paul, it was not pretty. We see how he was shipwrecked and beaten and imprisoned, and we see that he ultimately dies a martyr's death. We see the, the torture of, of what he goes through. And we say, well, God, why didn't you rescue? Why didn't what? We have to look at this passage, though, and recognize in our lives, make this apply for us, where sometimes things aren't fair, but when we ask God, why didn't you rescue? We have to look like Paul and say, no, he did rescue me. He did save me before. We can't draw all these other parallels. Look at the life of Paul. It says in, 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 verse, in verse 1, but Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. There are these moments in our lives where God comes in and rescues us and completely flips our world upside down. Imagine that you're Paul for a second, or Saul, and your whole life has been, this is who God is, this is how he works, this is what the Messiah is going to look like, this is it, and I will dedicate every moment to this cause. And all of a sudden, in a moment, Jesus shows up and says, you're persecuting me, I'm the Lord, look at me. In that moment, in that way to Damascus, Saul had his rescue. Saul had the hand of God move and grab him and rescue him in the most severe and powerful way. He won his lottery that day. God looked at him and rescued him out of something. When Saul, when that happened to Saul, Paul later, his whole world was flipped upside down and everything that he had to think, every, the direction, the trajectory of his life had to change in that moment. That was his moment of rescue. That was the moment where God broke through and rescued him. One more person that I want to look at, though, in, in this morning's passage that we often overlook is this man, Ananias. Ananias is a disciple. That's what it says. We only see him in this passage. This is the only time you see Ananias. Here's a man who's, he hears God say his name and he's ready to say, yeah, Lord, I'm listening. He's a disciple. He's going after God. And this is all he gets in Scripture is this one little passage where he lays hands on Saul and prays for him. I wonder, I wonder if some of us, if we were Ananias, and if we would wonder, why, God, are you wanting me to do this to Saul? Ananias' response was what? I've heard about this man, and I know what he's done. This is how Ananias saw him. But what is God's response to him? He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Basically, he says to Ananias, hey, you're a disciple. I need you to go to the guy who's tormenting Christians and proclaim that he, this is what he's going to do. He's a chosen vessel. He's a chosen instrument. And he's going to speak to the world for my name. He's going to do great things for me. And he's going to suffer for my sake. Some of us, and this is how we, we live life, we're like, we're like an Ananias and we see God choosing somebody to be their vessel, a vessel for him. And we hang up on this verse, like, God, why would you choose them to be your chosen vessel? Why would you use them to speak to kings? Why would you use them to speak to Gentiles? God, I don't understand. Here I am, a disciple. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't captured anybody. I'm doing pretty good. Why are you choosing them to do that? We hang up on that first part, that verse 15, and we 
forget that in their life, there's a verse 16 as well. The two of them go hand in hand in our lives. They go side by side. The way Saul was chosen to be a vessel to do amazing things, he was also chosen to suffer for his sake. Sometimes we look at someone's life and we just recognize, we see where God has chosen them, but we forget that they suffer as well. You and I have to recognize that our co-workers, our family members, that person who won the lottery, or that person who has a better job, or that person who got the promotion, or whatever, that person that we look to with envy, we got to recognize they've got weight on them as well. They have to suffer as well in different ways. But we let envy and jealousy get into our hearts where we can't see that there's those two go hand in hand. All we see is our suffering, and we forget about our rescue sometimes. We too easily forget the moment of our rescue. You and I, we've, we've all had this, if you're in Christ, you've had road to the Damascus experience where you were hostile toward God, you were alienated, you were in sin, but yet he rescued you in his love. And we so often forget that. We get so in the moment where we begin to make this case against God, like, God, why aren't you helping me now? And we forget that he just rescued us from the biggest thing ever called separation from him. I wonder, I wonder what we would, what, I wonder how many people would call themselves Christians is it, on the day that you were rescued, on the day that God pulled you out, showed you his love, showed you who you are in Christ, how, how great life is in Christ. I wonder if you would sign up for it if he also showed you how much you would have to suffer for his name. If he would lay out a plan and say, this is, this is the storms you're going to go through. This is, Paul, you're going to be shipwrecked, you're going to be beaten, you're going to this, 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 and this. You're gonna be, people are going to try to kill you multiple times. I, I, I wonder if you and I, in today's culture, in today's society, if we could hear the gospel presentation and see the joy of Christ and then also see our sufferings, where we would stand in this. We, we are people who hate suffering. We, are hate, we hate obstacles. We want the best for us because we believe the best about ourselves. And we, be, we believe we deserve the best for ourselves. In the midst of suffering, Paul still says that he has ultimate joy, that he's content in all things, and that he even says to die would be gain because I'd be with Christ. That, that's Paul because he realized, he had this moment where he realized he was saved at that moment and he didn't deserve it. He had his ultimate rescue. So every time he was shipwrecked, every time he suffered for the gospel, he wouldn't say, well, it's not fair, God. This isn't fair. Look what I've done already. You owe me one. In Matthew, we see that it rains on the just and the unjust. Jesus says this in Matthew, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes the sun rise on the evil and good, and he sends rain on the just and the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. 
Jesus says in those moments where we try to figure out, God, why, why are you doing good things to them? They're, they're wicked people. Or they don't deserve it. And why, aren't you, why, is it, why is it raining on me today? Why am I sick? Or why am I going through this? Or why are the people at work awful to me? Or why did they get the raise and I didn't? God says we have to love those people that are enemies to us, that frustrate us. We can't stand back and say, God, I don't, I, it's not fair. He said even the Gentiles can, can, can be friendly to people that they like. Even, even sinners and tax collectors can be friendly to the people that they like. It's can we have that heart that when we see somebody that we don't think deserves something, say, God, I love them, bless them, continue to pour your grace upon them. Or do we make this case in our hearts? You and I this morning, I, I want us to take this home with us that, that we have to stop pleading our court case every time it rains on us. But God, I did this for you. Don't you remember that I did that? But God, I'm really good at this thing here, so you should do this for me. Or God, don't, don't you remember that when you said this, I responded well. You know, I listened, and I took this beating, or I did that, or whatever. Or God, wouldn't it make more, this is something we do all the time. Wouldn't it make more sense if you just did this and blessed me? That way you could get glory that way. Like, it would make a lot more sense, God. And we try to argue with God as if he doesn't, if he's not good, and as if he's not perfect, and as if he doesn't know everything already. We try to make it make more sense to God. Like, no, it'd be better this way, God. I'd, I'd think about it. Think about it, Lord. You might come around to my point of view. <laughs> it doesn't make any sense. But we do it all the time. We try to make this court case every time we, it starts to rain on us and not rain on the person beside us. We've got to start remembering his court case for us. That's what Paul was able to do. He was able to reflect on the goodness of Christ that we've talked about in our home groups, that Christ is our ambassador. He's our advocate. He's the one who stands before us. Every time Satan throws an accusation, he rescues us. So when it rains on us, we have to recognize he's already rescued us and given us way more grace and way more love and way more joy than we should have ever had the privilege of experiencing. If our life is hid in Christ, why are we constantly comparing our life to everybody else's? Why are we constantly evaluating who's got it better and why don't I have it as good as them? This can be a, a dangerous trap. And can, I can only share from you personal experience. I can't tell you the amount of times that this has gone into my heart to where I look at myself and city lights and our structure and I begin to evaluate other churches. Well, God, why are you doing that for them? Don't you know he teaches this? You know, that's a little weird. <laughs> or, or they don't have a very good, you know, home group system. Or they don't have a very good worship team. And yet... God, why are you growing them? Or they're in a city that's got a hundred churches. Why, why are you blessed? Like, we begin to do this evaluation thing. I'm just being vulnerable and honest with you. When I let my, if I let myself get there, then I begin to focus on my works and what I think I deserve. Not the fact that everything is more than I deserve. Every blessing Every person in this church, every, every worship team member, every, every bit of, of life change in the city is more than I deserve. It's more than you deserve, but God does it. 
I can't make a court case with them. Well, I don't understand. Maybe if we tweak this and I become better at that, then God, no, it's, I just got to let God grow his church. I just got to let God do what he wants in the life of Jesse Miller, the life of Ashley Miller in, in our house. I can't compare my house to Ben's house or anybody else's house. We have to remember our rescue. You look at the book of Acts, and we're going to continue to look through it. Paul, twice, we see him recount this same story. We see it in chapter 22, and we see it in chapter 26. That he recites his conversion experience. Why? Because it's all that he's living on. He was lost, he was broken, and now he's rescued. He was persecuting Christians, he was persecuting Christ, and now he's been rescued. So in the midst of standing before court, in the midst of being beaten, he continues to remember, I was rescued. I was on my way to Damascus to kill, to bind, and to rob, and God intervened and changed everything. You and I, in our moments of jealousy, in our moments of, of comparing people, we have to remember where, what road we were on when God rescued us, where we were headed to, what destruction we were bound to do until God intervened and changed things for us. Verse 1 says this, But Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. That's where he was. That's where you and I were in some level when God rescued us. We were still murderous and threatening evil people in our hearts. But God has rescued us. And we have to continue to remember those moments, to remember that monument when God did this. That's why Acts tells this story three times in one book. We have to remember how broken we were when he reached out and knocked us off of our horse and blinded us so that we could see him. Paul was not trying to live a life of comparison to everyone else because he only compared his life to what he had been rescued from. That's why he could look at Christ and say, to die is gain. I'll, I'll take Christ. I'll take it. I'll take the beatings because I have Christ now. I understand Christ. I have experienced the goodness of him. I can be content in all things because I know him. When we compare our lives to others, here's what happens in our hearts. We begin to build pride, number one. We begin to look at the things that we do good and we begin to build ourselves up. And we get prideful. When we compare our lives to others, number two, we devalue others. We look at them not through the eyes of Christ, who sees Saul and says, I'm going to let him speak to Gentiles and kings and all of Israel. Instead, we look at Saul, the persecutor, the torturer, the one who's hurting Christ. And that's the way when we begin to compare, we do that to other people as well. We look at our neighbors and say, they're not as smart, or they're, you know, they're really noisy, or they're not a Christian, or whatever. We, we begin to make this list. And we devalue them. We don't see them through the eyes of Christ. We don't see them through the eyes of love. Or third, the third thing we do when we compare is we begin to blame God. We think that God somehow hasn't got it figured out, and we do. And so it's his fault that it's raining on us today, and, and it's not raining on them. We begin to think that he's unjust or unloving or wrong. I want to read one more quote from N.T. Wright. He says this talking about Paul being called. When you want to reach the pagan world, 
The person to do it will be a hardline, fanatical, ultra-naturalist, super-orthodox, pharisaic Jew. And they say that God doesn't have a sense of humor. The person to reach Gentiles was the hardest Jew you could possibly find. And God says, no, I'm going to use you. Uh, Everybody thinks it's going to be, no, it's going to be you. That is the way that God does things. And I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. But that's what he loves to do. He's got a sense of humor. God's plans and his blessings don't have to be fair and they don't have to make sense. It just doesn't. And once we can settle that in our heart, you and I can live like Paul did. I'll do everything for you. It doesn't matter what you do to me. I'll do everything for you because you're good. His plan doesn't have to make sense. Last point that I want to point out, and if our worship team can come forward, God, like I said, God's plans don't have to make sense or be fair. There's a friend of mine, I'll I'll just tell you a story. I was on my first mission trip to South Africa. And this trip, there's different parts of South Africa. Some are beautiful and they're they're wealthy and they're rich. And then there's other parts that are just broke. Squatters and they're living in mud huts and they have no food. It's it's Africa. You have both, the rich and the poor. And the first trip that I went to, we stayed in this church. Um... One, one night we actually stayed out in the village in a trailer. It was the best house in the town. Had no roof. Well, it had a tin roof, but there was, it was open, so bugs were everywhere. It was wonderful. That was sarcasm. Sorry. But I remember one night I was, I was there, and we, in, the, in the house that we had stayed at at this church, we had all slept on the floor, except for the leader of the group. He slept in a little room with his own bed. And I said to him, I said, Dan, how come you have a bed? It's not fair. We're all sleeping out here. How come you have a bed? And he said, with with responsibility comes privilege. Okay, that makes sense. And sometimes in our life, we can only see the privileges of people with responsibility. But as I got to know Dan, and as I got to help him with other trips to Africa, and as I've gotten to hear his heart more, I've seen the immense amount of weight that sits on Dan when he leads a trip. I've felt the immense amount of weight of what it means to to be a pastor of a church. Sometimes we can begin to look at people and say, how come they get to have that bed and I have to sleep here? How come they get to do this and and they get to take this trip and they have that nice house or they, they, you know, God's using them in this gifting and for some, I want that gifting, but I'm not, he's not giving it to me. And we can see the privilege. It's easy for us to see the privilege, but we don't see the weight that comes on it. The flip side of that is that there's somebody who looks at your life and looks at your childhood and says, how come they have these privileges and how come they have that gifting and and they've got that goodness or whatever and I don't have that. There are privileges that I have in in, in my calling, but there's weight as well. And there's privileges that you have in your career field. But there's weight as well. I've told this to my wife before. There's been days where I thought, man, it would have been a lot easier to go with my friend Chris and become a firefighter in D.C. 
he got paid at 18, he was 18 years old in the academy. He was just studying for a test all day. He was getting paid $18 an hour. I'm like, it would have been a lot easier, God, to do that. But at the same time, he's the one pulling bodies out of cars. And he's the, he's the one watching a helicopter pilot that he knew die in a plane crash. Like, he's the one who told me the other week, he's like, I couldn't share with anybody the amount of imagery that was in my mind. The, the, the children's deaths and stuff. With every privilege, there's also weight that comes with it. There's suffering. And so I love that verse 15 and 16 says this about Saul. He says, he says, I have called him and chosen him to be my vessel who will speak to Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I will teach him how much he must suffer for my name. You and I, if we can get these two verses and realize God is saying the same thing about us, that there are these privileges and these moments where God uses us, elevates us, and lifts us, and there's also these moments that we just need to suffer and suck it up and let him let us suffer for his name and realize we've already been rescued. That's good enough for me. I want to be a person, and I'm just saying this to you with 100% vulnerability. I want to be the person that doesn't live in this constant comparison. I want to be a person that says, God, whatever you want from me, I'll do it. I'm not excited about some of these things, but I'll do it. I don't think Paul was thrilled when he was being beaten, but he could rejoice in it at the same time because he knew he was doing it for, for Christ. We saw that earlier in Acts. When the disciples were persecuted, they were rejoicing that they could be counted. They, were, they felt privileged that they could suffer for his name. I want that to be in my heart. I, I don't know how, what level that's on with you today. I don't know what person you compare your life to or, or you wish they were. Um, my wife and I talk about it all the time, like randomly it'll pop up where we'll see that Powerball sign, you know, like, oh man, what we could do with $54 million, right? And we, we begin to make this comparison list that, you know, if, if we would win it, we'd give this to charity and this is how we'd help the church and our parents would have this and our kids would be in college and we'd invest into this stock and blah, blah, blah. And so we make this like logistical plan and like all of a sudden in our heart we're like, you know, God, we deserve this. Can't you just give us $53 million? You know? And then the guy who wins it is like, I'm not quitting my job. I love driving tractor. And then he buys, you know, he buys $3 million worth of lottery tickets the next week. You know, he just wasted it all the next day. We cannot live that life where we're constantly wishing for something else and discontent with what God has given us. Because then we just begin to put God in front of, in court. God, you're not fair. I don't want to be that person. And, and, and that's not what the gospel is. The Christian life is not about being fair. It's about being crucified with Christ so that we can live in him. That's what it is. I am not saying that God does not give blessings. I'm not saying that at all. But I'm also saying sometimes those blessings come with some form of suffering. And that's good too.